Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of New Books in History. I'm your host, Sean Burns, and I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Matthew Spector to talk about his very important new book, The Atlantic Realists, Empire and International Thought Between Germany and the United States. It was published by Sanford University Press in February of 2022. This proved interesting timing. For following the Russian invasion of Ukraine towards the end of that month, realism, the subject of Dr. Spector's study, came to have something of a moment. Whether it was a good or a bad moment is not entirely clear. On the one hand, some accused realism of propagandizing for Russian President Vladimir Putin's regime, while others applauded it for having predicted the Eastern European conflict a decade or more earlier. A March 28th New York Times op-ed, meanwhile, claimed that realism must guide the Western reaction to Russia's invasion, a claim often repeated particularly by those concerned about the return of supposedly moralistic neoconservative approaches, neoconservative approaches to foreign affairs that dominated U.S. foreign policy in the early 2000s. Anyone who wishes to engage with or even observe these debates on foreign policy would do well to read Dr. Spector's book, a penetrating investigation of the very concept of realism itself, one which exposes its origins in the imperialist aspirations of the United States and Germany in the late 19th century. Dr. Spector, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So uh, I thought we might start out uh, just telling you know the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background, some of your research interests, kind of what projects you worked on before, because there's an interesting trajectory getting to this book I'd like to explore, I think. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so basically, my training is in 20th century European intellectual history and German history. And uh, my first book was a study of, of Jürgen Habermas. Um, it was an intellectual biography that tried to contextualize his political and legal theory within his career as a philosopher and public intellectual in West Germany. And um, the, the sort of the gambit of that book was to sort of um, illustrate how some of the most recondite abstractions in, in Habermas's thought become more, become clearer and, and more intelligible when you um, <clears throat> correlate them with the intellectual field and the kind of stakes of the, of the arguments that he was making, particularly about the German constitution. And I sort of argue in that book that he was a kind of lay jurist or a lawyer monquet um, that rather than turning to law late in his career, that the legal theme had been there from the very beginning. And I had the occasion to interview him uh, on a number of occasions and, uh, you know, sort of test some of my, my hypotheses. And um, uh, he ended up be, being happy with, with the result, and I was happy with the result. So I, I come from intellectual history, from German studies, and my I've always been interested in intellectual biography. Yeah, so and I think that's that gets to the kind of interesting trajectory here. You know, having read the book myself now, it makes sense to me how you could go from a project like that about Habermas and end up doing this book. But you know, for the listeners who might think of this again as like yes, a foreign policy intellectual history, uh, you mention an interesting almost classic archival journey uh, uh, in your conclusion, you know, how did, how did we get an, an, get to the point where we're writing about uh, Atlantic realism? Yes, thank you. I, I should spell that out much more clearly. Um, so in writing the Habermas book, I discovered that Carl Schmitt and his legal and political theory were extremely important for his, for, for Habermas's generation. And at the same time, I um, was very attracted to Habermas's cosmopolitanism and his, his interventions in 
d- debates in, you know, in the wake of the war on terror. He spoke of the divided West, and he was a critic of American unilateralism. And, but at the same time, um, there was a kind of left Schmidtian backlash um, against some of the um, the kind of the cosmopolitan human rights politics of a Habermas and others, um, arguing that um, uh, essentially that uh, he who invokes humanity wants to cheat, and that's had a very that that fr- phrase from Proudhon, which was adopted by Carl Schmitt in the concept of the political, has been very important in animating a lot of productive scholarship, especially around the journal Humanity in the last uh, two decades. And yet I found it sort of strange that uh, Schmidt was becoming en en vogue um, on the left because he had famously um, defended Nazi uh, imperialism in a text from 1939 in which he argued that the American Monroe Doctrine um, was a relevant model and template for what Germany should try to achieve in Central Europe. And so um, in the context of the, the early 2000s and the war on terror, I, like most American citizens, I, you know, kind of became more interested in, in international, the stakes of international politics and sort of followed Habermas into the international realm, but also uh, wanted to follow um, Schmidt and and the left Schmidtians into um, into these debates. I should also say that as a college student, I was already exposed to realism in a seminar of Joseph Nye's on ethics and foreign policy, and I had sort of growing up, you know, in the late '80s, the late Cold War. Um, the kinds of issues that I cared about as a student and ac- student activist like South Africa, Nicaragua, El Salvador, for me, realism um, was about as bad as it gets in terms of U.S. foreign policy. We hadn't yet invented the neoconservatives. And so, um, you know, I had long been, you know, I'll admit that I had long been sort of hostile to realism. And so when I um, was looking for a new project in the early 2000s, I decided to go back to my, my early, um, you know, my collegiate interest in um, the realists and, and Hans Morgenthau. And it seemed like a, a good time to, to investigate that. And of course, the other link was that there's a Schmidt-Morgenthau dialogue and a lot, there was a lot of scholarship looking at the Schmittian roots of, of Hans Morgenthau's thought. Hans Morgenthau, of course, is the most famous American realist, uh, whose book Politics Among Nations was the leading textbook in the post-war period. So bringing up Morgenthau here and your initial exposure to realism, you know, in a, in a seminar and as an undergraduate, uh, brings me to the question of sort of what is realism? It's something Mor- Morgenthau kind of a term he rejected at points, right? And we, we still see lots of debates about what what do we mean by this term realism, its practitioners are, are often unclear about it. I think this is part of why the, uh, the sort of mini you know, debate uh, about realism and the war in Eastern Europe uh, could result in people having such different perspectives on, on how realism understands that event or was involved in the, the outcome of it or justifying it, um, because this is just such a, a, a difficult to nail down kind of term. So it, it Perhaps we can't say definitively what realism is, but what does it mean to you and in the book? Like, what? How did you come to understand this concept? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. Um, I mean, I guess I would say that there there are two ways in which I handle the concept in the book. The one as is as an an actor category, a category that scholars self identify with, uh, and that process of of um, uh, both practitioners, foreign policy practitioners, and academics identifying as realists, I think could be traced from about 1939 with E.H. Carr's uh, famous intervention. Um, certainly Hans Morgenthau from about 1946 uh, onwards um, identifies a, 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 as a realist. 
I, I'm not aware of him ever explicitly rejecting the label. He he did become what my friend Bill Scheuermann calls an uneasy realist, because like George Kennan, he didn't like some of the purposes to which his thought was put, but I don't think he ever rejected the term outright. Um, so, so on the one hand, it's an actor category from the 1930s to the present, and it also becomes quite Baroque and elaborate because you get uh, not just the the realists, but then the generation of the neo realists in the 1970s, and then a and then a and then a return to classical realism in 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 the the, the 90s and the 2000s that who are, who refer to themselves as the neo classical realists. Um, so there's a there's a kind of proliferation, the kind of endless kind of modification of realisms, you know, to uh, the ethical realism of Anatole Levin from the Quincy Institute. Um, so, so realism becomes quite complex in definition and, and modifiers. Um, and I think one way to one one critique that or, or one thing that might be said about that is that the proliferation of uh, of definitions re- resulted from. Um, a kind of effort to patch holes in the research paradigm that whenever uh, liberals or constructivists would poke a hole in realisms, the realists would have to come back and sort of, sort of, you know, uh, you know, uh, patch up the ship with some, some, some extra cement and, 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 and so forth. Um, so, but let me go back to the, so the second way in which I handle realism is sort of realism avant la lettre. So before it actually gets coined and becomes an established term in the late 30s and 40s, um, historians have not believed that there were any realists prior to that. I mean, I, I mean, yes and no, because there are others who would draw the, the lineage back to Thucydides, uh, Hobbes, Machiavelli, uh, and, and, and Bismarck, and, and so forth. Um, but usually the contextual intellectual historians have kind of argued that realism doesn't really exist until the 1930s. And what I try to argue is that if you look at the, some of these major discourses and thinkers uh, from the 1880s and 90s, there's a clear genealogical stream that feeds into the discourses of the 1930s. It's an organic, continuous tradition and therefore, I feel comfortable labeling uh, the traditions, um, a, ho- a whole host of thinkers and, and, and concepts, um, not just as proto-realist, as some other scholars have said, but, but, but really this is the defining um, historical watershed that, that, that gives realism its distinctive stamp. Yeah, and, and I would definitely want to get into sort of realism before the term and unpack that more because that's such a critical, it is, you know, in many respects, a, a, a fundamental revision you're proposing in your book and, and really uh, challenges the way that people often think of the, of the idea. And I, one of the things that allows you to, to build that genealogy is, is of course, finding, you know, certain commonalities in the way that, that, realists think or or look at the world and um i think that some of those commonalities are related to the sort of concept of national interests right and uh uh national energy and part of this the the very impreciseness of these sorts of ideas is why we see i think so much of those sort of baroque <laughs> aspects of liber- of of, a, of um realism where it starts to transform itself and it's constantly finding it needs to repair itself based upon attacks because but it's still very fungible so what what are these the the, the kind of if there is a leitmotif here of of the ways that realists tend to think there are a number there are a number of them but I, I think I would start with I think my biggest innovation is is not just to emphasize the leitmotifs of the national interest or spheres of influence though I do talk quite a bit about about those ideas but I think the real innovation of the turn of the century um, is the development of a mode of seeing uh, that I call seeing like a world power. Um, and 
um, this mode of seeing like a world power uh, reflects a uh, a sense that the world is shrinking, that 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 just as the American frontier is closing at the end of the 19th century, so too is a global frontier uh, closing. There's a sense of a finitude of resources and a scramble. And it's, it's at this period in time that the the notion of a kind of world stage on which one needs to attain a certain rank, the rank of a great power, uh, but not just great power in the 19th century concert sense, but great power as, uh, as measured on a world scale. And so what I try to argue is that there are discourses of realism or realpolitik that predate the 1880s and 90s. But what happens in, the, in this period is that thinkers like Max Weber and Friedrich Ratzel uh, who coined the term uh, uh, Lebensraum, are, are actually very critical of the term realpolitik. They see it as old-fashioned. They see it as oriented towards uh, hegemony uh, within a continental or hemispheric space, but not something that is adequate to a globalized world in which naval power is important and overseas colonies are the distinguishing mark of what it means to be a world power. And so I really think there's this sort of um, sense of globality that is um, uh, embedded in this, this early realist moment and the sense that to think realistically about globalization, one has to uh, enter this competitive fray, uh, obtain colonies, master the seas, and aspire to be a power of the first rank. Yeah, so can you talk more about that that intellectual milieu in the late 19th century and, uh, you know, expand more on how I think globalizing and global perspective is, is key here and perhaps why we might not go further back in the 19th century to look for similar sorts of ideas from other thinkers. I think of people like Friedrich List who had, you know, ideas about um, uh, neo-mercantilism and the importance of developing the, the ability to develop wealth for a nation and all this sort of stuff um, that he's thinking geopolitically, but not exactly in the same way as some of these folks in the late 19th century. And if you could also talk about as part of that, you know, why we have this, the German American focus here in the book. I think that's really interesting as well. Right. That's, 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 that's very helpful and, 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 and quite right. So, and it, this also goes back to your question about my, my intellectual trajectories is that basically I was trained doing European intellectual history and also thinking very much about intellectual traditions um, in sort of national containers, Habermas in uh, in Germany, in West Germany in particular. And what I tried to do in this book um, was to, you know, to really develop my skills as a transnational historian. And, um, but, you know, this, this, uh, this happened more or less accidentally. I mean, I obviously... Hans Morgenthau is this German emigre who comes to the United States. So I had a kind of natural uh, transatlantic starting point, but I had no idea that I would be, you know, taken back into the late 19th century world of uh, that the German, that the German American exchange went back to the 1880s and nineties. And that that's a big contribution of my book is to say that, the story of realism isn't just the story you've, hold, you've heard before about the Germanization of the American mind, you know, what Udi Greenberg calls the Weimar century or the many biographies of Kissinger, which emphasize, uh, you know, the formative um, uh, sort of experiences, uh, uh, the, you know, his, his family's encounter with Nazism. But to show that the, it's not just the Germanization of the American mind, but the, but the Americanization of the German mind at the turn of the century. So, for example, uh, the writings of, of uh, uh, Admiral, uh, sorry, um, Alfred Mahan are 
taken up by Emperor Wilhelm II and Admiral Tirpitz and widely distributed to all his officers. And so there's a kind of rage for American naval theory at the turn of the century. And similarly, a thinker like Friedrich Ratzel, who was a geographer who came up with this idea of Lebensraum, which subsequently became important for German imperialism, was also informed by um, Frederick Jackson Turner and um, uh, Ratzel's own uh, experiences in visiting the United States and being impressed by the enormity of the American continent. Uh, and of course, all of the German uh, liberal imperialists of the, of the 1880s and 90s look to the United States as a model empire, as um, Jens Uwe Guttel's uh, uh, book uh, has shown. Um, so Germany and America develop an affinity for one another and, and begin this kind of intellectual cross-fertilization for one major reason. They're both trying to catch up with Great Britain. Great Britain is the hegemon, it's the dominant sea power, and naval power becomes the name of the game. And Germany and the U.S. Um, get into this competition and want to, you know, kind of move up in the international pecking order. Um, and what I argue is that m more than any other two countries, you know, it's not America looking to Britain for the model, uh, but rather that it's Germany and the U.S. who look across the Atlantic at one another uh, and recognize an affinity in their position. And um, this, this is why I call realism in this, this, in the first Atlantic, what I call the first Atlantic realist moment is this moment of sort of temporal synchronicity between Germany and the U.S., uh, of, of both feeling like they are um, uh, rising powers who need to elbow their way onto the stage. And um, there's a wonderful uh, book that I quote by um, a Russian historian at Harvard named Archibald Coolidge, um, and he, argue, he says, you know, he is one of these thinkers in 1909. He's looking back and he says, you know, Germany and the U.S. Um, have this, this natural affinity. They're like two young pushing firms who have yet their way to make. England and France are the old established uh, businesses or, or, or houses uh, uh, but, but Germany and the U.S. are the two young pushing firms. And, and this is also why I call realism the, the Bildungsroman of empire, because I think that Germany and the U.S. are both in this, like, like adolescents, uh, you know, on their route to, to maturity in, in, the, in the form of the, you know, in the, in the classical, uh, in the novels of the Bildungsroman novel, Germany and the U.S. are um, see themselves as on a journey from immaturity to maturity, from inward continental or hemispheric hegemony towards a global vocation of going out upon the seas. And the rhetoric of, of thinkers like Mahan and Ratzel is very clear about uh, the need to, um, uh, to, 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 to attain a certain kind of ma uh, maturity um, as measured by... Uh, 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 having a global imperial vocation. And it's this equation of maturity, uh, seeing the world accurately and recognizing its, its um, uh, the, 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 the prerogatives and requirements of, of power politics in this competitive imperial age uh, that I think gets naturalized as the leitmotifs of realism. And so what we now think of as simply the common sense, the, the sort of distilled wisdom of the centuries about how international politics works, I think really gets its, um, becomes kind of unthinking, becomes an orthodoxy uh, um, in, in this, this um, through this notion that uh, you know, 
to be mature, one needs to think this way. Yeah, and so I think the one of the the really powerful things about your book is how you you reveal these late nineteenth century, the first Atlantic realist moment. You reveal that how things begin to be normalized then. But let's carry the genealogy forward. You know, the ideas are are you know gain their coherence and their their power in this period, and then they begin to move forward. And I'm thinking, of course, you know, the U.S. and Germany in the late 19th century as rising powers, well, Germany's rising power causes the great crisis of, of the First World War, right? And um, how how does the German-American realism carry forward through the, the First World War period? Particularly, I'm thinking in the context, uh, as an Americanist myself, of Wilsonianism and the way we think of uh, Woodrow Wilson's uh, uh, sort of approach to to international affairs, and that this is a kind of major moment around World War One. How how did how does this realist moment in the late nineteenth century carry through that crisis? Uh, in, you know, between nineteen fourteen and nineteen eighteen. Yeah, that's 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 very that's 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 very important. Um, and a great a great transition into to, to later chapters of the book where I talk about geopolitics in um, the interwar uh, period. I mean, this affinity between Germany and the U.S. obviously uh, is a dead letter by by the time of World War One, and that's why I found it so remarkable to to read American intellectuals praising Germany for its you know its vigorous imperialism and sort of. Um, just it's it's quite 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 interesting, um, uh, and I, I think it's also very characteristic of realists that they engage in th- that these kinds of comparisons and tend to de-emphasize uh, national exceptionalism, and that's one of the reasons that it's attractive to people today. Is that you know you can you remember Trump saying the thing about well you know you think America's so innocent you know we do things like this too. Um, but so there's a period in which realism is sort of allied to um, that realism shorn of national exceptionalism. And then I find that realism becomes more tethered to national exceptionalisms after World War One. So I think that, um, you know, Wilson is depicted typically liberalism and realism are typically depicted as opposites um, down to this day. Um, but I think that this this is a misapprehension of the continuities that go across the dividing line of, uh, of, of, of world war one. Um, I mean, if you treat Wilson as a break with all balance of power politics and realpolitik and all of this, um, I think it, it 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 does it does it doesn't do justice to the, the the strong continuities between Wilsonianism and what comes before, um, and you know uh, Benjamin Coates has described this, and and um, um, uh, Juan Pablo Scarfi have, have have talked a lot about you know the milieu around the Council of Foreign Relations at you know in the in the in the late teens and early 20s and he, and they call it legalist imperialism right there may be it may have a slightly more legalistic character but it's not this naive moralism that we imagine uh, it to be and 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 the scholarship on you know all of the great scholarship that's been done on the League of Nations from Adam Gadachu uh, to Mark Mazower and others have really shown us, um, you know, these strong continuities in, um, you know, uh, the, this sense of racial and civilizational hierarchy, right? So I don't think there's, I don't think Wilson represents a big break. And the fact that he doesn't represent a big break is, is absolutely critical because the story that the realists tell themselves in the uh, whether it's E.H. Carr in 1939 or Morgenthau in the 40s and 50s, the story they tell is of realism vanquishing this naive liberalism. And this really um, uh, misses the, the strong overlap between the two discourses of liberalism and realism. The liberals were more realist than they're often given credit for. And I would say that's true of, of Woodrow Wilson, um, 
And the realists are not as oppositional as they're given credit for, certainly not as, as much as they're given credit for today. In other words, the realists are not, are not anti-imperialists, for one. Um, but um, I think Wilson is, is, is the, the, the story that the realists told themselves that they were overthrowing a naive moralism and returning to uh, a kind of sober Bismarckian realpolitik um, and restoring uh, a sense of geopolitics where it had, it had been absent is a historical because what I try to show is that Americans are very much participating in an interwar discussion of geopolitics um, and that, you know, the U.S. does not cease to be geopolitical, right? It has been geopolitical since the Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine is, 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 is uh, a, for me, a kind of text of realism. It's the touchstone of Mahan. It's the touchstone for Carl Schmitt. And, um, uh, you know, Wilson doesn't forswear the Monroe Doctrine either, right? I mean, Wilson is, is a big interventionist in Central America, as we know. So I think bringing liber- liberalism and realism closer together in the story of 20th century uh, U.S. foreign policy is helpful for um, um, sort of preventing us from romanticizing realism as, a, as, a, as an anti-imperial or, or really oppositional uh, discourse today. Yeah, and that brings me to, well, I, it's sort of, I suppose, intellectually lazy, go from one war to another, but I'm going to do it anyway. I go from World War I to World War II. Why not? Why not? Yeah, why not? And, but we have here similar sort of moral panics again, or ideas of like, realism as opposed to morality coming out of uh, Nazi Germany, right? And the idea that uh, there are, there's a Nazi super weapon, intellectual super weapon, and it's their ability to look at the world in this geopolitical sort of way. And there's lots of interesting maneuvering linguistically that goes on in the United States and elsewhere by realists and by journalists to try to distinguish the way the, the Germans are thinking, because they're really bad, obviously, and the way the United States is thinking, even though there's all that overlap in the 30s that you just mentioned a moment ago. Can you talk about this this war moment? I think it's particularly interesting. Again, American historian myself, and I didn't know anything about this really sort of this panic in the early 40s about Germany's intellectual superweapon uh, and, and all of that. Well, you know, I... I, I was delighted to find that, um, you know, a German intellectual as obscure as, as Karl Haushofer, who was the dean of, of interwar uh, German geopolitics, uh, had had a film made about him in Hollywood uh, with, you know, with Karl Haushofer pacing around a globe and that Reader's Digest and, and Life had, had devoted attention to uh, this man who they believed was... Uh, the intellectual mastermind of uh, German, you know, German world domination. Uh, and as you say, the, the, the misrecognition here um, was the, uh, the sort of American panic about the Germanness and the, the inherent dangerousness of geopolitics. And, um, what I try to show is that between 1942 and 1945, there's this very abrupt reversal from uh, prominent intellectuals being uh, anxiously distancing themselves from the term and um, uh, all of, you know, all of this essentializing of, of geopolitics as, 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 as belonging to German national tradition to an abrupt pivot where um, uh, thinkers begin, like Isaiah Bowman and um, Nicholas Spickman and and others, and and many of the German emigres who are kind of trying to mediate these discourses, say, you know, actually, geopolitics isn't false and evil. It's actually something we we need an American geopolitics. And one of my favorite characters in the story is Father Edmund Walsh, 
who was one of the founders of Georgetown, Georgetown's um, Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. And there's this wonderful moment when Haushofer has been apprehended by the Allies uh, near his home in Munich, and Haushofer pleads with the, uh, the person who's apprehended him and says, why couldn't you have sent me someone from America who would understand my work, the people I've been in dialogue with for the last 20 years? And, uh, and Father Walsh says, well, you're looking at him. I've been studying your work for 20 years, and here I am. And Father Walsh becomes this person who basically uh, does this, this very uh, sophistic uh, and, and complicated dance of trying to both to kind of harvest the, the, the you know, separate the wheat from the chaff uh, of geopolitics and to lecture the Germans on how they got geopolitics wrong, but also preserve a remnant. And so the whole story for me is about this denial of the connected history of American and German empire, right? This actually a, a connected Atlantic story, uh, but the, you know, the fact that Germany and the U.S. are on different sides and because the ideologies look very different leads to um, a kind of misrecognition of our own intertwined uh, history, which is not to make any kind of moral equivalences either between American empire, and Nazi empire. And I, I issue that um, uh, completely. But um, the story of, of the chapter, my chapter on, on uh, you know, geopolitics during World War II is, uh, is, is very exciting for me. And I, I think it's also, it also helps explain the um, the popularity of the term realism, because I think I argue that realism formed a kind of semantic refuge uh, from a tainted uh, discourse of German geopolitics. So that while there were thinkers who were trying to argue that uh, an American geopolitics was necessary and and fine, um, I think it also uh, I think this is part of what gave the energy to. Um, the sort of gathering of forces under under the rubric of realism, that it was a kind of a cleaned up term. Yeah, so taking refuge in that term, realism, hiding out in it, so to speak, able to divorce from its perhaps more problematic legacies of these kinds of, this way of looking at international relations, realism has its moment, the moment that most people aware of it in its history would be thinking of, and that's the moment after World War II, during the Cold War, the period you alluded to earlier, where the, the traditional story has the Germanizing of American thought through figures like Morgenthau and then eventually Henry Kissinger. Um, you've, you've alluded to, at various points here, how your uh, story changes the way we should look at that. At part, you were alluding to it a minute ago when you said that, you know, American thinking was already more German than people realized before uh, Morgenthau uh, became such a prominent figure. But how how do how does your story change this traditional narrative of realism? Because again, I think this is really important because this is the way most people have understood it as a historical phenomena. Um, you still see lots of books being written again about people like Kissinger um, that frame it as this sort of German emigres who saw the collapse of the Weimar Republic and, you know, their perception of the world was one as, as one inherent towards tr where there's an inherent turn towards tragedy at all times, right? How does your story change that? Well, I, I mean, I think that the, the, the role of the emigres is significant and I, I don't really want to... Um, contest that directly. I, do, I guess I'm trying to supplement it um, by saying that realism doesn't just have a mid-century modern moment, but also this fin de siècle uh, imperial moment, and that by overemphasizing the mid-century modern moment, um, we kind of lend some of the, uh, uh, the gravitas of um, uh, the of World War II and, and, and the Holocaust uh, inadvertently uh, uh, to realism, that, that realism becomes the saving remnant, the bitter fruit uh, of the Shoah. And I find that um, a kind of disturbing because it 
can then go on to authorize other kinds of domination and, and imperialism. Um, so I guess with regard to, so it doesn't, I, I, I don't challenge the, the, the emigres specifically, but I guess I do make a contribution in terms of, um, you know, what is the role of realism during the Cold War? I mean, there's a lot of scholarship that's coming out or about to come out now on Cold War liberalism. And I guess I would say for me, it's not so much the Cold War liberalism, which is, you know, my bet noir, but rather Cold War realism. That realism to me is what does the damage, uh, especially in the global South, where you know, as I alluded to before, you know, having lived through the late Cold War, it was the realist insistence that the national interest was always and everywhere at stake. And those vital interests, a concept I trace back to the turn of the century, uh, the, those vital interests that could not be compromised and that were were global, global in nature and required us to essentially be on the wrong side of history right? Um, whether it was in Vietnam or South Africa or, um, you know, in allying with d- dictators in Indonesia or, 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 or what have you. And so I guess I'm um, sort of rereading that the wisdom of the German emigres as exemplified by, uh, you know, Morgenthau or Kissinger, you know, who prided themselves on maintaining uh, mutual, you know, mutually assured deterrence and, and sort of avoiding superpower confrontation, but were quite blind uh, and sort of morally indifferent to the collateral damage of uh, the, the realist paradigm um, in, in, in the global Cold War. Um, so I, I, I suppose that's, that's part of my story. And then with regard to um, and I, and I also, and, you know, I, I acknowledge in the book that Morgenthau was an early and important critic of the Vietnam war. Uh, but again, there were better reasons to be against the war than that it was not in the national interest. Right. And so, um, you know, I find it kind of an incomplete critique of imperialism. And really what I, what I, what I argue is that, the Cold War realists had both imperial blind spots, you know, blind spots as to the nature of American imperialism and its its global privileges, but also a very severe democratic deficit. And um, the deficit rested on uh, or stemmed from the fact that realism was imagined as both an art and a science, uh, a kind of art of judgment that only a certain kind of elite male uh, you know, with the right sensibility and right pedigree, could could master that it was ineffable and 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 and, and difficult to uh, uh, you know to itemize the components of, uh, but it was also a science. It was a it was a law bound, um, and 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 the realists. You know, this goes back to your point about how to define realism and its fuzziness. The realists always oscillated between defining realism as an art and a science, and they never really decided. Uh, uh, which which it was, and that's why I try to kind of reframe the whole thing by saying that realism is a kind of a way of seeing a set of attitudes and dispositions that have a history and that are part of our part of a cultural history and uh, are not outside of history. They're not um, you know this unchanging uh, set of truths uh, that we've you know that we've handed down from. Uh, Thucydides. But with regard to the Cold War, I have have more to say about the Cold War in in West Germany, if you'd like me to to go that way, but we can go other directions too. No, please do. Okay, so yeah, just to say that, um, you know, uh, I I devote a lot of space in the book to uh, a preeminent Cold War diplomat, Wilhelm Greve, who was the West German ambassador to the United States. And um, he was a very important figure, I argue, a very important Atlantic realist uh, insofar as he had, um, he was both a a very important academic, um, historian of international law, 
who wrote one of the most famous histories of, of global histories of international law, uh, but also as a diplomat with 25 years of service. And so I think of him as kind of the, the West German Kissinger. And um, I, I try to show that, um, that Greva, um, you know, Greva had begun his career in the Nazi foreign office. So he illustrates the strong continuities between the Third Reich and the Adenauer period. And I try to show how um, the history of Ostpolitik and detente uh, in West Germany um, creates an opening in which the Cold War realism, which is dominant in West Germany and the United States in the 1950s and early 60s, begins to unravel. And I call this a kind of crisis of classical realism. It's also attached to uh, the debacle in Vietnam. And, um, and, um, and, I, and I argue that this, you know, that, 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 that this created an opening uh, for thinkers of the Frankfurt School and, and, and the sort of transatlantic student movement to uh, to raise some some new new criticisms of this traditional way of thinking about foreign policy, and um, I think that that tradition uh, is one that we need to return to today because I think we, you know, realism has no conception of the planetary and our, our sort of our, the fragility of of the planet, and it it, it thinks, you know, it doesn't. Realism always had trouble with the nuclear, the specter uh, of nuclear apocalypse, and and uh, the Cold War realists became in, increasingly sensitive to and open to what their critics called u- utopianism, or what they used to call utopianism. The realists became more utopian under the pressure of uh, uh, under 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 the pressure of history, and that that dichotomy started to break down. But I show that in the with the waning of detente uh, and the reheating of the Cold War in the early '80s under Reagan and Cole, uh, the crisis uh, is papered over, and there's a kind of reassertion uh, of of realist fundamentalism or realist orthodoxy in the early '80s. And I think that's where we are today. Is basically with this, you know, that there was a there was an opening in the late '60s. There was a crack in the realist edifice and it sort of got covered over. Um, and now of course, with the, you know, with, 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 with China and, and Russia uh, in the last several years, there's been, you know, the talk of the return of great power competition or the return of geopolitics has been ubiquitous. And I would, you know, I would just say that this notion that, geopolitics ever went away is 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 specious but also that the return of great power competition um you know it's not really it doesn't that you know that we shouldn't um there's something unthinking about using these categories uh which originate in the late 19th century as if we all know what they mean and i think what the what constructivists have have shown and what historians like me are trying to show is to sort of take apart uh the notions of uh great power of national greatness and of of power power politics itself and ask um you know what are the measures of power and uh you know do, do they have an objective status that uh, requires states to to act in certain ways and and uh, forego democratic deliberation about the purposes of foreign policy. I think that's, that's probably a really fantastic place to to more or less wrap up here. I mean, in part, my experience reading this book again at a moment where there's a lot of discussion of realism in the press, both, again, related to the war in Ukraine, but also, as you said, in these constant discussions about is the U.S. losing out to China, et cetera, et cetera. It's hard to see these conversations in the same way after reading your book. Um, and to you realize uh, the that, you know, the 19th century in a lot of respects is still very much with us today. Um, at, and often from the mouths of people who might not realize that they, that's what they were saying. But uh, one thing I'd like to ask before we finish up, um, and if you feel like 
free to comment on that, of course, as well. I don't want to put words in your mouth by any means. But um, is are you working on anything else? Well, I, I, I just 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 by way of of wrapping up your your question, and then I'll talk about the next uh, project. Um, you know, I, I've just written a piece for Dissent um, as part of their forum on realism and the left, and you know, I. I I, you know, I think there are valuable insights in the realist tradition, and I, but I do think that realism's reputation for imperial restraint um, can blind us to realism's invest, historical investments in empire and the ways in which realism can continue to serve as an apologia uh, for empire. And I also think that realism's emphasis on the tragic and the the inherent tragedy of great power politics or international politics itself uh, betrays a certain conservatism and a lack of historical imagination about the world, the kind of world that we can create. And I think that it's the tragedy and restraint are... um, important correctives to, you know, neoconservative or liberal internationalist hubris. And I understand why they've become fashionable, but I really think we can do better. Now, with with regard to new projects, I'm going to go back to this um, kind of crisis of classical realism in the late 60s in Germany. And I'm I'm looking very close. I'm looking at... um, some of the the figures from peace research, peace studies, peace research of the late 60s and 70s, including uh, a very important political scientist who founded the Frankfurt Institute for Peace Research, Ernst Otto Chempel. And I've got some interviews lined up in Germany in in the following weeks. Um, And I'm also looking at a very important Princeton political scientist uh, couple, Harold and Margaret Sprout, who wrote uh, about eight books between the 1940s and the 1970s, and uh, who began their career at the sort of the center of the national security state, and um, in as theorists of uh, of, of national power, uh, really, really quite orthodox realists, uh, but uh, ended up uh, writing a book called "The Politics of the Planet Earth" and became pioneering ecologists. And, um, and so I'm fascinated with their trajectory, um, both within and beyond the Atlantic realist tradition. Uh, Some fantastic stuff there, a lot to look forward to. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. Uh, I encourage everyone to uh, check out uh, Dr. Spector's book. It's fantastic, really essential reading, I would say. Uh, and also that article in Descent. I'll be reading that after we get off here. That sounds fantastic. Um, Matthew, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Sean. It was really a great pleasure.